Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com. Amen. Good morning, Calvary. My name is Joshua Rushing. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of sharing some thoughts and digging into the Word with you guys this morning. But before I do, I just want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers, and I want to say Happy Mother's Day to my mom. Hi, Mom. Uh, and also to my wife, the awesome mother of my children, and to my two older sisters who are both mothers as well. I've just got some, and my mother-in-law. Hi, Mom-in-law. I've got some, uh, got some wonderful women and mothers in my life, and I've been so privileged in that. So this morning, if you get your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. I'm not going to tell you where yet because you'll cheat and get ahead of me. Just turn to 1 Timothy, and we'll, we'll get to the rest later. I'm going to talk a little bit this morning um, about women and about the Bible's view of women. As Jeff mentioned earlier, the, the Bible has a really high view of women. And sometimes we read through the Bible and we read through some passages that seem kind of tough to deal with when it comes to some of those things. And we're going we're gonna to look at a few of those today. But this is sort of a part two of a message I preached a year ago on Mother's Day. And if you missed that message on Mother's Day, you can go to our YouTube channel and scroll down for about 15 minutes until you come to last year, a whole year ago. But it was a message about Jesus' view of women and how Jesus was so countercultural. The culture in that day and in that part of the world had a very low view of women, and Jesus came to flip the whole thing upside down. And as we read through the Gospels, we see time and time again Jesus standing up before this, this good old boys club and saying, this is not the way I intended it to be. This is not how things are supposed to go down. And so I gave that message uh, last year, and now we're going to pick up on some of the passages that might be a little bit more difficult when it comes to women. Just show of hand, ladies, how many of you have just read through the Bible and you're going, oh, the Bible's so good, I love the Word, and then you come across one or two of those passages that you're like, what, hold up, <laughs> wait a minute, that doesn't sound good at all, I don't like that verse at all. Anybody in here ever have pro a problem with a few of those verses? I'm telling you, I'm not even a woman, and I've had problems with some of those verses. I've, I've struggled with some of those. So we're going to take a look at those today, and I entitled this message because we're pr primarily going to look at Paul and some of the tough passages that Paul had related to this. So I entitled this message today, You're Killing Me, Paul, because there's sometimes when I read through the scriptures and I'm saying, Paul, yes, Paul, yes, and then all of a sudden I get to one of those verses, I'm like, you're killing me, Paul. So we're going to try to make some sense of some of those hard passages about women in ministry today. You ready? Ready or not, here we go. <laughs> but before we talk about women in some of these passages, we need to make sure we understand. We need to make sure that we go all the way back to the very beginning. I'm stunned at how many times in studying Scripture I can go back to Genesis 1 and gain so much clarity about passages that I'm having a problem with. Because Genesis 1, God's doing what? He's creating things according to His perfect plan. So sometimes when we're having issues with some passages, and not all the time, but sometimes we can just go back to Genesis 1, and, and it's kind of like a plumb line. So when we, when we look at women, 
and men and their roles and relationships, let's go back to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And in Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we know in verse 31, when God saw this, he says, this is good. So from the very beginning, God created the male and female. He created them and gave them both the charge to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. He didn't pick one or the other. He said, let us make mankind, which includes men and women, in our image. And then the charge was, have dominion over the earth. But... Sin entered the picture, and things changed. And God described the result of the fall for the woman in Genesis um, 3.16. Genesis 3.16, he said to the woman, "And, and I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then he gives a description here. He says, your desire shall be toward your husband, and he shall rule over you. So in the second part of that passage there, that can be a slight trouble spot. Let me make this clear. Jesus says, I will surely multiply your pains in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children. But then he describes the result of the curse, the result of sin. He's not prescribing this. Jesus isn't saying, here, I'm actually going to make you subservient to all the men. He's describing, because sin has entered the picture now, You're going to find that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. He's describing a result of the fall and the result of sin. And from that point, we see cultures across the earth, even some even today, that have a low view of women that try to keep women subservient to men and men to be the ruler of everything. And although there are examples in Scripture of some women who were highly revered, and highly respected, most cultures of the day regarded women as second-class citizens at best. And then as we fast forward to Jesus' day, we still see a very low view of women. But Jesus said he came to free the oppressed, right? Jesus was different. The culture leading all the way up to those times of Jesus said women were second-class citizens. It said women's testimony would not even hold up in court. I mean, if a woman witnessed a murder and there was no one else, and she witnessed it, I witnessed, that guy would just get off scot-free because the woman was, was, was viewed as dishonest, and her word carried no weight at all. Women weren't allowed to study the word. Now, we sit in a room like this where most of our women are educated. We have a high school education or a college education or a master's or a doctorate or whatever. But in that day, women were uneducated. They weren't even allowed to study or to read or to even sit before a teacher to hear the Torah being taught. Women in those days were not actually even allowed to sit at a table 
to eat with a man that was not part of her family. And in fact, one place I was reading in some of the, the tradition of the day that said if a man came and knocked on a door that was not a, that woman's part of her family, she couldn't even answer the door for him. She had to go get one of the men to answer the door. I mean, this was a culture that consistently put down women and held them in a very low view, but Jesus was different. Did Jesus not allow women to sit at his table? Did that not stir up some stuff? I could think of a story where a woman came to sit at the table and to begin to wash Jesus' feet, and the Pharisee says, if only he knew who this woman was. And Jesus says, I know exactly who she is, and what she's doing right now is worship. You shut your mouth. That's the Joshua Standard Version. He did actually say that. Did Jesus not teach women from the Scripture? Do we not see Mary of Bethany sitting at his feet, listening to the words of her rabbi? And someone comes along, her sister, by the way, and says, you need to tell her that she, she needs to know her place. That's the place for men. She needs to be doing the, something else. And Jesus says, she's chosen well, and I'm not going to let you take that choice from her. Jesus flips everything upside down. He had such a high view of women. And I could go on and on, but if I did, I would just be re-preaching last year's sermon. So if you want more of that kind of stuff, go listen to last year's sermon. So here's Jesus living differently, interacting with women in a different way that was not just countercultural, in some cases flat-out illegal. You know, one of the things that we see also in Jesus' day was any public interaction that a woman had with a man out in public that was not part of her family, there was an assumption of sexual impropriety. That was just a given. Oh, she's having a conversation with this man, and that man's not part of her family? There's something going on. And you can see this, and you go read some of the, the cultural writings of that day, and, and it's, it's stunning. It's it's. Stunning in a bad way, not in a good way. But Jesus lived differently. And then we fast forward a little bit to the time of Paul. We move to the early church. And soon after the ascension, Jesus appears to Saul and he changes Saul's life. Now that his name is Paul, he becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. And in the process, Paul writes about a third of the New Testament. And we know Paul is a pretty, pretty important guy in Bible history and in church history, right? And who, forget, who can forget the words of Paul? I mean, Paul's writings lay the foundation for the New Testament church. I mean, this Paul, this master theologian in all of these verses, I and mean, we've got verses like 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Ooh, what solid theology. We love Paul. We celebrate Paul. We have verses like Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yes, Paul, great theology. We love you, Paul. Romans 8.31, who, who could forget that? If God be for us, who could be against us? Paul, you're nailing this thing. Paul, just there's such depth, depth of solid theology there. What about Ephesians 2.8? For by grace you have been saved through faith. There have been volumes of books written on that one verse. I mean, commentaries from the great church fathers. I mean, Paul is nailing this theology thing. 
And these and many other passages have shaped Christian theology for 2,000 years. And we love and we celebrate and we quote and we study and we memorize these words of Paul. And then, wham, we get to 1 Timothy 2. So if you get 1 Timothy 2, go ahead and turn to chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12. And the same man that wrote those words that we stand upon as the foundation of our faith writes this. In like manner also that the women adorned themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which, that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but in silence. Again, let me say, you're killing me, Paul. You're killing me. I mean, you were on a roll here for a while, Paul. I mean, you had some really good theology, and you had some really good verses, and then you just whacked me upside of the head with that one? You're killing me, Paul. So what does this mean? I mean, how, how could this even be? After seeing the way Jesus treated women, how could Paul say such a thing? I mean, does this mean the New Testament and the New Testament theology and New Testament church condones the oppression and the silencing of women? I mean, is Paul a sexist? A misogynist or a chauvinist? Could it be? Paul? So when we're dealing with these tough passages, we not only need to look at the verse itself, but we need to look at the whole of Scripture. The Bible interprets the Bible better than anything else. Can I get an amen on that one? So we come to a passage, say, okay, well, there's a passage that's tough. What does the rest of the whole of the Bible say? And maybe we can gain a little bit of understanding. So when dealing with this particular passage and a couple of others about women, and I'm only going to really mainly hit this one just for the sake of time. But like I said earlier, it's important for us to go back to the original intent of God's design that we saw in Genesis 1. And we need to look at Jesus' attitudes towards women. And we also need to look at the culture of the day to find out what on earth was Paul talking about. So y'all ready to dive into that passage with me for a little bit? So in the case of 1 Timothy 2, we need to get a little bit of context on Paul's statements. First of all, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is feeling the weight of leadership in the church in a place called Ephesus. You guys know Ephesus. We get the book of Ephesians, right? That was a letter that Paul had written to them. And Timothy is a young man, and he's feeling the weight of leadership in the church in Ephesus. So if we want to get an idea of what was going on there, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, so this is his letter to Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 2, but in the first chapter of Timothy, we get an idea of what Paul is writing to Timothy about. What is this book about? He says this, As I urged you when you uh, went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. 
So Paul is basically writing this young leader in Ephesus, and he goes, I'm writing you this letter because you need to understand there are some false doctrines creeping into the church, and you need to be aware of them, and you need to address those. There are false teachings that are eking their way in, and it's not okay, Paul. I mean, Timothy. Paul's, Paul's talking to Timothy. He goes, not okay. So he says from the beginning, that's part of the whole reason for writing this book. Writing this letter to Timothy is false doctrines, and, and that's important. You're going to need to push pause there, but keep that in your mind. It's important when we get back to our passage. So what are some of the issues? What are some of the false doctrines? Does the Bible tell us what some of the false doctrines that Paul is referring to in Ephesus? Guess what? It does. Now, we can go back naturally. We would think we can go to the book of Ephesians to find that, right, because we learn a lot about the Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is actually more of a general theological letter. It doesn't address some of the specifics about what was going on in Ephesus. But if we go back to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19 gives us quite a bit of information on what was going on in Ephesus at the time. And Acts 19 tells us that Ephesus, in Ephesus there was a great temple to the goddess Diana. And some of your Bibles say Artemis. So when you see Diana, think Artemis. When you see Artemis, think Diana. I mean, there were, there were some uh, little distinctions there, but over time, they actually were, were meshed and, and uh, molded into one deity. So Acts 19 tells us that there was this great temple to the goddess Diana. In fact, we know from history that this temple was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This wasn't just some little building. This was a massive building, and everyone in the ancient world knew about this building. It was a temple to this goddess, Diana. Also, the city of Ephesus was actually considered the temple guardian for this goddess. So it wasn't just some random little god. They thought, ah, we'll worship her every once in a while. This, they were the, this city was considered the guardian, the temple guardian of, of this goddess. Now, who was this goddess Diana? Was she just some kind of small little random god, goddess? The goddess Diana was actually the daughter of Zeus in, 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 their, in their theology and mythology. She was the daughter of Zeus. That's pretty high up there, Right? In fact, her brother was Apollo. Diana was a fertility deity as well as the goddess of wild animals. And one of the things they would do to worship and to, to, to give expression to their affection for this goddess is they would have these festivals. And one of these festivals was called the Festival of Torches. Now, I know I'm going into some history stuff and half of you are going, history, oh, come on, man. I'm a history major, so I love this stuff. But this, this is really important. If we're going to understand what Paul was saying later on, we need to understand Ephesus. We have to understand what was going on because this is what he was trying to address in that passage. So during this festival of torches, it was a month-long worship ceremony in Diana's honor. And her followers, one of the things that her followers would do, primarily the females, would... Would, they would do their hair in these elaborate braids and elaborate things, and they would adorn their hair with flowers and with gold ornaments and with pearls and all of these things, and they would, they would go about in the city. And because Diana was a fertility goddess, much of the worship of, Di, uh, of Diana uh, was uh, sexually explicit. It was very, it was very impure and, and very gross, 
and they would go about the city all adorned in these fancy hairdos with all the flowers and the gold and everything in their hair. And one of the ladies would actually be put up on a, this pedestal, almost like a float in a parade, this young lady. And they would parade her around the city, and they would chase, this young lady would chase a man around the city to try to overtake the man, and that was a that was a symbol of Diana. When she was up in her little, up there with Zeus and Apollo and those guys, she actually wanted to marry a mortal man. And so she came to earth to marry a mortal man, but no mortal man would have her, which in turn made her really upset with earthly men. And her vengeance was against them. And so they would parade these, these women in their fancy stuff, and one of the women would chase a man around the city in order to overtake him, but could never quite get him because that was the symbol of her not really being able to get the mortal man that she desired. So this wasn't just some kind of side religion. This was a way of life for the people in Ephesus. This is what young Timothy was trying to pastor. It, it was in this context this was a way of life for them. In fact, we know from history that their entire financial system was tied up in the worship of Diana, of their goddess. So that's some context of Ephesus. So imagine this young pastor, Timothy. There's a few new converts coming in. He's got a little church, maybe a couple of house churches or something, and they're just trying to live for Jesus. And even these new converts that are coming in have lived all of their life in the context of this Diana worship. Okay? So now, let's look at this passage. In verse 9 and 10, Paul is writing to Timothy. And he says, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves with modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly things. Oh, push pause there. Does that sound familiar to you? What was, what was that? What was all the fancy braided hair and the gold and the pearls and things? What, what, what was he describing there? the worship of the goddess Diana. So what we see here, what we can understand, is that this new little church plant that this young pastor was, was, was giving leadership to, there were some people in there who were bringing in activity of a worship of a goddess into the church worship setting. And Paul was saying, yeah, that, yeah you don't do, we don't do that. So was Paul prescribing, was, was this a law, was Paul saying, women shall not wear gold? Let me ask, how many women have gold on right now? You heathens. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you not follow the New Testament? How dare you? Anybody have braided hair? Anybody braid their hair? Have you ever braided your hair? Just women, you ever? Sinners. Just Sinners. So Paul's not saying you can't braid your hair or wear nice things. He already told us, I'm addressing false teaching in the church. 
I'm, I'm addressing these, this false idol worship that's coming into the church. He said, women, when you get saved, when you come into Christ, you don't bring Diana worship into the worship of Christ. You don't bring that, that activity. You don't bring that stuff. That, that's called mixture. And the Bible has quite a bit to say about mixture. We don't want mixture. We worship the one true God and him alone. This isn't kind of, I'm going to bring a little bit of this, little flavor of this religion, little flavor of this religion, this idol worship. So that's what Paul's addressing here. He's not putting women down and saying, women, you just have to wear these boring old tunics and frown and just don't do your hair up really nice. He's not saying that at all. So this is an issue of mixture, not an issue of gender roles in the church. The warning not to bring mixture of other religions into the worship of God is a common issue all throughout the Bible. So then we get to the next verse, verse 11. Verse 11, you looking at it with me? Then Paul says, he starts off by saying, let women learn in quiet with all submission. Before we tackle the whole verse, read those first three words out loud. We want to jump right to the in quiet and submission. Stop just before you get there. Paul says, let women learn. That's, that's stunning, considering women couldn't learn in that day. They weren't allowed to learn. They were uneducated. They were not allowed to, to, to read the Torah and to memorize Scripture and things like that. So we want to jump straight to the bad part, the, the hard part, in quiet and submission. But Paul, before he even gets there, says, let women learn. Let them learn. Don't keep them from learning. Don't keep them from looking into Scripture. Don't keep them from digging into the Word. The Word is for them as well. So the Bible is for all of us. And he says, let them learn. Let women learn. I mean, this is huge. Completely countercultural. It reminds me again of Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus said the same thing. Let her learn. So Paul is affirming that we should let them learn, let them study, let them read. Ah, but... We've got another phrase we've got to deal with. Let them learn in quiet and all submission. So once again, I have to say, you're killing me, Paul. You're killing me. So what do we do with that, though? What do we do with this? When he says women must learn, let them learn, but in quiet and all submission. Well, the word quiet in verse 11 comes from the same word that we see in verse 2 of the same chapter. So go up to the chapter, go up, go up to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, and it says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, and intercessions be given, uh, oh, and the giving of thanks, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and all who are in authority. You guys are familiar with that verse, right? And then what does it say? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So clearly Paul is saying we need to pray and intercede and give thanks for all men and kings so that we may lead a silent 
life and never speak. Right? Well, that's what the word quiet means, doesn't it? I mean, surely later on when Paul says women ought to learn in quiet, he meant zip it. So, obviously, because Paul wrote this, this is the same chapter here, since Paul used the same word up here, Paul obviously means that we all need to live a mute life. Do we assume that about this passage? Then why do we assume it about the next one? You know what that word quiet and peaceable means? I bet you're wondering, don't you? It means calm, tranquil, without disturbing or disturbance, composed, and avoiding flamboyance. The idea of this word implies divinely induced inner stillness. It does not mean speechless. It does not mean speechless. And again, if we use all of Scripture to interpret Scripture, we see Paul actually is already presupposes that women are going to be speaking in church. And I could point you to a dozen passages where it talks about, when Paul's talking about the uh, prophecy and how prophecy ought to be done in church, he talks about men and women prophesying. So Paul is already presupposing that women are going to be speaking in church. He would not sit here and say, well, let them learn, but they have to zip it when they get into the church building. It's not what Paul's saying at all. You can go read 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul is clearly talking about women speaking in church. Because he says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an unformed person comes in, comes in, meaning to their meeting, all. Okay, show of hands. How many of you in this room are part of all? Anybody in here part of all? Raise your hand. Are you part of all? I see women's hands. You're part of all. So Paul says, if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes into the meeting, here's what you need to do. So Paul is presupposing that women are going to be speaking in church. Again, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he says, how is it then, brethren, that's the generic term for mankind, for, for brothers and sisters. It is not a gender-specific word. How is it, brethren, whenever you come together each of you have a psalm, have a teaching, have a tongue, a revelation, interpretation. Okay, so y'all were all a part of all. How many in this room are part of each? Can I see? Show of hands. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you very much. See that hand? He says, each of you, you have something to bring. And then he mentions things that we have to use our mouth and our tongue for. It's called speaking. He says, a psalm. A teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. So get out of here with this Paul says women have to shut up in church. I'm, I'm done hearing it. Women, you have a voice. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you. We look at the same word of God together. We read and we study the same word together. Find your voice. If you don't have a voice, if you feel too shy or bashful, or I don't know, that, that Paul has some things about shutting up. Maybe I should just shut up. We sang about it this morning. You've got a lion inside of those lungs. Lift up your voice. We need you. And I could go on and on giving you examples of, of that, but let's move to the next, next part of this verse. Then Paul says, let them learn in quiet. So we obviously know that doesn't mean learn without talking. That just means learn with tranquility, without contention. 
without contention. And we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to illustrate that here in just a second. So what does Paul say after he says in quiet, he says with all submission? Does he, mean that, does he mean that women are subservient to men in church? What does he mean when he says with all submission? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 12. Look at verse 12. 1 Timothy 2.12, it says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. First of all, this phrase, to teach or have authority. And that phrase is kind of used as a, a full compound phrase. And in that context, when Paul says the word submission, did you know that there are 12 different words in the Greek language that speak of exercising authority over a subordinate? There are 14. What did I say? 14, 12. There are 12 different words in the Greek language that, that talk about exercising authority over a subordinate. And guess what? Paul doesn't use that word here. He doesn't use that word. Also, there are 47, yes, 47 different Greek words that mean to rule over or to govern over a subordinate. 47. Guess what? Paul doesn't use a single one of those here. Not a one. And if I do my math correctly, which I'm not super good at math, that's 59 different Greek words Paul had to choose from to communicate I do not allow a woman to have any kind of authority over a man. She has to be in submission. He could have used any one of those 59 different words, and he didn't use a single one of them. Paul uses a word that is found only one time in Scripture, right here. It's the only time this word is ever found in Scripture. It's the word authenteo. Authenteo, so we, we kind of get our word uh, authority or even authenticity, we get from that word authenteo. And this word carries the meaning of acting on your own authority or usurping or dominating. Acting on your own authority or usurping or dominating. That's the word Paul uses when he says they must be in, to, in submission. So what is he saying? Paul is addressing specifically women who usurp authority in order to disturb or interrupt the meeting. Because you remember what that word quiet means when he says quiet and submission. So the quiet meant without contention. Let them learn, and we're already presupposing they're going to teach because he said bring a psalm, bring a teaching, bring a word, bring a... So we're assuming they're going to learn and to teach... But he goes, they need to learn in quiet, meaning without contention. Don't learn in order so that you can just start arguments and just and get things into, you know, just an ugly place. We don't, want to, we don't want arguments and stuff. And then he says in submission, he says, don't usurp authority. Now, is he saying women, all men are your authority? He's talking about church leadership. Because who's he writing this letter to? Timothy, who's in leadership, who's leading the church. He said, 
Timothy, yes, let women learn, but, the, but Timothy, I, I'm guessing, probably had some women in there who said, oh, I can learn. Well, now I'm going to stand up, and I know Timothy's saying this, but I say this. And she's causing, this, this, these particular women that he's addressing are causing contention, not because they're teaching, but because they're actually usurping the, 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 the church leadership structure. In other words, he's saying don't let a woman just stand up in church and dominate the meeting by teaching without being given the authority to do so. And guess what? If, Paul, if Timothy was dealing with men doing the same thing, I guarantee Paul would have said the exact same thing. We don't want men standing up and teaching without authority to teach. Right? Somebody coming up and just dominating the meeting without, you know, Pastor Jeff or somebody saying, oh, yeah, hey, I'd love you to come share a word. We won't just let somebody walk in right now in the middle of the sermon and just stand up on the stage and said, women must be silent. Oh, now, wait a minute. You're causing contention, and you don't have authority to come in here and, and, and speak to us. That's what Paul's talking about. He's not saying women can't talk. Women have to be quiet. Women have to shy back and go stand in the corner. So let me just close with this encouragement and this charge. There are some passage in our, passages in our Bible that seem tough. And before I really started digging into it, this one was really tough for me. I just couldn't have a clue how this could be, how Paul could be saying those kind of things until you start to dig in a little bit. You start to learn a little bit of history, get a little bit of historical context, get a couple of other verses in there to look, use the whole Bible to interpret and then you begin to think, Paul had a very high view of women. And he's not saying what it seems like he's saying on the front, on the front end. He's not saying that at all. You see, God's design from the beginning was that men and women, though we have different roles, though we are different for sure, that we would be side by side in the kingdom of God. And though cultures for thousands of years often oppressed and silenced and dishonored women, this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of Paul. This is not the way of the New Testament church. Jesus affirmed and honored women. Paul affirmed and honored women. And today I want to stand here in the place of authority because I've been given authority in this house. I want to stand here and say we are a house that publicly and proudly honor and cherish and affirm women. Women, young and old, listen to me, and I want to tell you this with, with, with clarity and authority. You are loved. You are loved. You are valued. You are cherished. The eyes of the Lord are upon you. You have a voice. You are enough you are enjoyed, and you are needed in this house. Men, young and old, it's time that we recognize that though women are unique and different from us, they bear the image of God. They are gifted, they are talented, they are anointed, and they are called to be on mission with Jesus just as we are. And let me just say this last thing. In fact, why don't you go ahead and stand? Calvary, we are a people who value and honor and love women because this is who Jesus is and this is who we are.
Would you pray with me? We hope you've enjoyed this episode from Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary Community Church, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com.